This podcast is powered by The Plug. Hey there, podcast listening people. Connor Doobie here. Very much appreciate you tuning in to the show. We are Mile High Mentors, and we're here to bring you information, strategies, resources, and stories from the local mentors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and subject matter experts. Wherever you're listening to this, make sure you subscribe for future episodes. We are on all of your favorite podcast platforms, all of your favorite podcast apps, and please leave a five-star review so others can find the show too. As always, we have an incredible show for you here today. We're going to roll right in, but make sure you go and visit all of the links in our descriptions. Make sure you visit the links on our social media sites, wherever you find us at Mile High Mentors to learn how to get connected up with mentors, resources, the services that we provide for the community, the nonprofits we're involved with, and to learn more about how you can support the podcast and support Mile High Mentors. We are by the community for the community, with the community. You can also email us, milehighmentors at gmail.com. Again, milehighmentors at gmail.com. If you have guests you recommend, you might be interested in being interviewed on the show, or you want to collaborate, sponsor, partner up in one way or another. Those are things we are always open to, milehighmentors at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you or your company are looking to jump into the podcast world, now is the time. The Plug Agency is here to connect you to the full power of podcasting. You just record and leave the rest to us. The people are listening and want to hear from you. Theplug-agency.com. That's theplug-agency.com. Click the link in the episode description for an exclusive offer. Without further ado, my friends, we are going to go ahead and dive right in. Mr. Blakeman. Oh, that's my dad. You can call me Chuck. <laughs> What's going on, man? How are you? Doing well, Connor. How are you? Doing awesome. It's a beautiful day. Got a yes. webinar coming up tomorrow that I've been scrambling and getting getting excited about and uh yeah. all at the same time and all the good stuff how about you yeah very same i got the same weather i'm just in south denver so in highlands ranch what you what you guys consider new mexico considered new mexico i don't know maybe that far <laughs> maybe more castle castle rock or pueblo might be more new mexico yeah territory. that's true that's true but yeah no having having fun moving hard moving fast just enjoying the ride, trying to make it, trying to make as much trouble as we can. Yeah, making trouble is the only way to go. Life's too short to do anything other, otherwise, right? No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. People, people are afraid of trouble. They're, they're always looking for trouble coming at them, and that's the wrong response. We need to just go find trouble. Yeah, <laughs> seek more trouble today. That's it. We can. Yeah. We're good. Cut you trouble. You might as well design your own. Wrap. That's. I think that was our podcast right there. There it is. Do you have, uh, did you do anything fun for the uh, weekend? Yeah, I did a bunch of, uh, I built a deck. I built a second floor deck for off of our bedroom. Because who doesn't do that on a weekend? Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. 
did you was that fun or was that a task? Oh yeah, no, or? that's fun. <clears throat> For me that's that's therapy. Just get out there and get all sweaty and get sawdust on me and measure stuff and design stuff and yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Did you do any like barbecuing or anything this weekend? <clears throat> Nothing. We just we were flat out on the deck and and uh, bought the food from restaurants to support them and that was about all we did and then we watched all the neighbors try and burn their houses down with fireworks. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, it was crazy. I was up north, up, 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 pretty north, up in Wellington, Colorado, if, if you've been up there with my family. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, downtown Denver sounded like it was, it was crazy down here. <laughs> I couldn't see it, but it sounded like it was more fireworks than ever before. Oh. And even more so weeks leading up to it. Yeah. I mean, there are fireworks going off every single night leading up to yeah. the 4th of July. I think people have a lot of pent-up energy right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, same thing. When we live in Highlands Ranch. We live on the Greenbelt, so we can see lots of houses, you know, dozens if not, you know, 150 houses. And the whole place was just lit up in a way that hasn't been in 10 years. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Strange times we're living in, but you're no stranger to odd well, economies and strange I, I, times in business and – I yeah. tend to be more comfortable in those kinds of uh, vague environments. What is it that makes you comfortable about it? Well, because I, I have a fundamental belief that, that uh, we need to be living in stress. Stress is good. You know, if you want to build your muscles, you stress them. If you want to build your mind, you go to school and you stress your mind. If you want, stress is good. It's just too much stress. You don't want to try and lift too much weight, you'll die. <clears throat> but stress is good. And, and the idea of stress for me is, is being, uh, putting myself in a position where I don't quite get it on a regular basis. Whatever it is I can do, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing with the deck. I didn't know what I was doing when I redesigned the kitchen and redid the bathrooms and put in a steam shower. I, you know, how'd you learn all this stuff? Well, who said I've learned anything? I don't know anything about this stuff. I'm making this up as I go along. So that's just a, <clears throat> a fundamental view of life that I have that as adults don't learn unless we're disoriented. And, uh, and stress is good. Yeah. So learning people, your, your opinion is people really do learn more so from pain and, and challenge than yeah, not, just it, like learning. Gen, education. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't even have to be pain, but it has to be the unknown, which can feel painful at times, fear based, but it, it's just, I just have to be disoriented. I have to be in a position where I have to, I'm regularly saying, man, I do not know what I'm doing. Yeah. I think that's a, I don't know if that can be learned and, and maybe we can talk on that. I've always felt, I always get the most anxious and, and um, anguish when I'm not doing something scary. Like if I'm not doing something that's scary or new, then I get anxious. Like if I'm not working, you know, and, and building, even building, like working and building are a little bit different um, or grinding, so to say. So I wonder if that's a unique characteristic of people like you and me, or maybe- I, 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 yeah, I, after 60 plus years of life, I'm, I'm not a determinist and I'm not, a, uh, I'm not someone who's just a behavioralist. I think it's a combination. I think I was born with the DNA from my mother that, that risk is fun. And somebody else would be born with DNA that says, oh my God, don't put me anywhere near risk. And then both of us can stretch ourselves. So I think there's, there's every one of us should still take it on. What, what, would, what would be scary for me today or just disorienting for me? might be too much for the next guy or too little for the next guy. And so we all just need to be disoriented and let's just keep going from there. And you decide what disorients you, but nobody should be comfortable. Let's put it that way. 
So walk us through a, uh, what led you to where you're at in, in your life today? Yeah. Walk, walk us through that. Well, I guess because I was uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, uh, I had, I had things in, in uh, grade school and high school that they didn't know back then. I was uh, ADHD, a, a little bit ADHD, a little, uh, quite a bit dyslexic and uh, um, left-handed. And the only one of those three that they understood was left-handed and they didn't like that either. Uh, back then, you know, they tried to make you right-handed. So I, I graduated at the bottom of my class in high school. They had me in the principal office the day of graduation, discussing in front of me like I wasn't there whether they should let me graduate. It was that bad. Um, so I, and I came out of high school thinking that I'll never get a job. I'm the dumbest kid in, in, in high school. And it turns out I was ADHD, dyslexic, left-handed, right-brained, all that. But they didn't teach for that. So I just thought I was stupid. Uh, and so I, I came out disoriented. You know, it's like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just making it up as I go along. I did get a full scholarship to a music school, but they made me go to summer school to prove that I could actually do the academics. That's how dumb they thought I was. And I thought I was. And so I struggled through that for a couple of years and then joined the army because I was pretty sure they're the only ones who would give me a job as dumb as I was. And I, had a, I had a high school degree and went through two years of college and got, got into there. And then I started and I built this little tiny business while I was in the army. And then I built another one. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I got something to offer. And, and I just sort of took off with that. And by the time I got out of the army, I'd started a couple things. And, and uh, fast forward uh, 30 years later, I've built 12 businesses and eight, uh, eight industries on four continents. And and uh, uh, written bestsellers, uh, not just Amazon bestsellers, but the number one business rated business book of 2010 and the number 10 book in 2014. And so I guess I'm not stupid. It's a lot to break down there. What, what were um, some of your first initial businesses that you were building? Oh, I did a la landscaping business. I did a website design business when that was, a, uh, that was too early. I was like 1992. I was like, what are you thinking? Nobody does websites. What is that? Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, other things like that. I did a leadership thing when I just was a very fad. young. They're just a fad. Websites were just a fad a back fad. in the day, right? It's a fad, yeah. Well, I did find that the, my futuristic brain tends to get me into things long before they're relevant. So I kind of have to slow down and, and, and wait for the, the world to, to kind of grow into the things that I'm seeing coming. And, and I didn't do that well when I was younger. Then we did uh, webs uh, we did uh, uh, call center, uh, uh, direct mail, uh, printing, fulfillment, logistics, sort of Amazon.com stuff. Again, back in the early 90s when it wasn't fashionable, nobody knew what it was. And ahead of our time, once again, uh, so far ahead that we weren't relevant. And, um, so, yeah, we built uh, multiple business. People said, well, did and any of them ever grow big? I, I never had any interest in any of them growing big because they weren't actually that interesting to me after I figured them out. My life statement is, uh, my life question is, why do what others can and will do when there's so much to be done that others can't or won't do? So that's, that's an entrepreneurial view of the world. If, if there's a hole that somebody says, well, that can't be done or you can't do that. Well, that's an immediate, you know, that's a, that's a dog whistle for me to say, well, oh, really? Well, let me try that. So most of the things I've done, I had no, no background in whatsoever. And then once I got them figured out, I got bored because, again, the ADHD, the dyslexic, all that stuff kicks in. And so I didn't grow any of them big. We had one that went from 2 million to 9 million in three years, and we sold it 120 people, sold it off to the largest company in the fulfillment space back in the early, early 2000s. And that was probably the biggest one. And now we're, we're working on some other things today that could be $500 million companies. But, uh, and, and I'm doing things today that will probably hold me the rest of my life. 
Hold you by, by, by keeping you interested. Yeah, you keep me interested. Yeah, I'm working with I'm working with business owners and and as a business advisor to CEOs. Uh, and I started that in 2006. My best friend in the world lives in, in Belfast, Ireland. He challenged me to help other business owners grow their businesses. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't go to business school. I went to music school. Why? But he really felt like I had something to, to offer. And so I got involved. Uh, and, and it's just been fun because I can basically go through, I can live I can live a new business through everyone else's business by just learning. Every time I work with a CEO or, or a small business owner, I have to relearn that industry because I don't know anything about it. And so were your like parents stuff. entrepreneurs or you just My mother was entrepreneurial in, in nature. She mm -hmm. was clearly entrepreneurial, but she, she was born 40 years too early. Back in the 60s, they asked her to run for the, 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 as a senator from Ohio, and we weren't a rich family by any means. But they just saw you know, great leadership in her, and she said no because she thought a woman's place was in the home. <laughs> so, so she had uh, she did a lot of things. She started uh, she helped start a, uh, a community college. She was the, the president of the board of education for twenty years. She she did the League of Women, Women Voters. She did whatever she could, and she ran a, rehabil a rehabilitation center, uh, which women didn't do in the seventies or eighties or nineties as well. So uh, that's my that's where I get. It. And then from her grandfather, her dad, my grandfather, I could see coming through there as well. Yeah. How do you how do you navigate that? The the sh I feel like so many who are maybe you know listening to this entrepreneurs that shiny object syndrome is one of the biggest roadblocks I yeah. feel like for people building successful businesses. How have you navigated yeah. that? Well, I, yeah, everything I learned I learned by doing it wrong. Um, so that that's the best way. That's not the best way, but it's the most permanent way to learn things. The most painful <laughs> permanent way. And and one of the things I learned from doing this was you can't afford to get bored. And I mean, there's so many good examples of this, but uh, uh, your customer is experiencing you for the first time. And you have to respond to them as if this is the first time you've ever done what you're going to do for them, either a service or product or whatever it is. You've got to do it as if you've never done it before. And every single time you do it, you have to do that. We, uh, we have this statement we use with our, with our small business owners. It worked. So what you're telling me is it worked so well, you stopped doing it. You know, why'd you stop doing that? Well, I don't know. Well, did it work? Yeah, it worked great. Well, so it was working and you stopped. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, we do it all the time. And it's to amuse ourselves. Boredom? You know, it's just, more of a byproduct of boredom? Yeah, it's a byproduct of boredom. It's just, well, let me, let me change it up. And I think it'll be more interesting for my clients when, in fact, it's, it's just me trying to make it more interesting for myself. We have a business development course we've been doing for 15 years now, an 11-week course. We do it twice a year. And, uh, you know, we've had thousands of people go through this. They say it's the best business development course they've ever taken. And it's, uh, I, I'm um, very intentional in doing that thing every single week, exactly like it's the first time I've ever done it. And then at the end of the course, I share that with them. Because it's one of the things they're going to have to do when they start selling their chair or selling their product or whatever it is, or, you know, we just can't afford to do it. Uh, any other way. So, so it's a discipline for someone who's ADHD, dyslexic, all that stuff. But for all of us, we just can't afford to get bored. Get somebody else to do some of this. Sometimes you find other people who can do bits and pieces of it. And that's the best way is find somebody else who's more systems oriented, who just doesn't get bored. They, all they do is just they keep refining. They just make it better. Yeah. I think we what, what's interesting about your message, especially in the world we're living, is we're in that 
hustle culture. I, I think that hustle culture is a bit like got to work, work your face off, ah. work, you know, work 20, 20 hours a day, don't sleep, do everything. And I think you've probably taken that path and, uh, and maybe yeah, I did even, that wrong too. Yeah. Maybe even <laughs> contributes to what you talk about now. So how do people make more money with less time? What, yeah. What's the process behind that? Yeah, and that was the that was the product of my birth, my first book, Making Money is Killing Your Business. I I wrote the first seven chapters in seven days, and then I wrote the next three in, in three more days a month later. And what, in reality is, it took me twenty years to write that book. I just took seven days to write it write it down. And and in that book, I talk about my own journey. That in my fifth or sixth business, I'm a slow learner. In my fifth or sixth business, I just was tired of building a business. Every time we build a successful business, my treadmill went faster. The more money, more revenue, my treadmill just went faster. My life got worse. Uh, and and my, my wife's life and my kid's life, everybody else got better. They all, they all got the toys and all the fun stuff to enjoy while I was busy feeling burdened by my business. So in my sixth business, I just, I came to the end of myself. I just called, we have to do this. We have to come to the end of ourselves. And I just said, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but this time I'm going to figure out how to make a business that serves me. And instead pause on of that one, one quick sec. When you say worse, worse in what way? Well, I'm sorry, worse. When you said it was worse for you, when you're the more successful your business yeah. got, the worse yeah, the it more got. Su- yeah, the worse because we bought the industrial age a lie. The industrial age lie is if you make a buttload of money, you will somehow be happy. Couldn't be farther from the truth. And I will just trot out dozens of people I know personally and thousands anecdotally, but it just doesn't work that way. You have to design yourself into the business. On the back of my book, I don't normally have my book on the, on the table, but uh, on the back of my book, it says my first book, use your business to build your ideal lifestyle. I actually felt guilty putting that on the book when I first put it there. I mean, I'm going to use my, that just feel, I feel bad about that. (laughs) It's been, it's an industrial age mindset that comes all the way back from the Protestant ethic that says a good man or woman works hard. Well, the, the, the fourth tenet of the Protestant ethic says, if a good man and woman works hard, they will be in control of their destiny. I was not in control of my destiny. The bigger my businesses got, the more they owned me, the more I became a hostage to my businesses. Business will give you the more, generally the more money it gives you, the more time it will take. And we taught, we learned that in the factories. If you want to make more money, you did overtime. You put in time, you got money. You traded time for money. And we bring that mindset into building our own business. I'm going to build a a really successful business. It's going to take a lot of time. Richard Branson lives on an island with 460 plus businesses, and he doesn't spend a lot of time with any of them. He's learned how to be a business owner, not an income producer. So it's a mindset, and that's how it was worse for me. And it's worse for everybody. I know a woman here in Highlands Ranch who makes almost a million dollars a month. And I guarantee I can call her office on Saturday afternoons, and she's going to be there. And she told me, if I'm not here, I got 20 plus people. If I'm not here, this thing's going to start to fall apart. She's not a business owner. She's an income producer. And that's normal. It's not normal, but it's normative. It's, it's, the, it's the norm. Uh, it shouldn't be considered normal. What should be considered normal is that as you grow your business, it makes more money and also it provides more time. So that was what I did in my sixth business. I just said, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but this time I'm going to figure out how to build a business that produces both time and money. It doesn't rob me of one to give me the other. 
no clue how to do it. And that was my journey, my sixth business. And that ended up being this book, Making Money is Killing Your Business, that taught people the four building blocks of how to build a business that, that serves them, where they can actually make more money in less time. And the testimonials on that, uh, now we've got our thing, we've got this thing called Three to Five Clubs that we started as a result of this for small business owners. And you know, one woman said uh, just last month, a couple months ago, I had an $85,000 a year hobby business. And uh, a year after figuring out I could actually make more money in less time, it's a million dollar business. And next year it'll be a $2 million business. And oh, by the way, we just spent the last four months on the road with our four kids in a Winnebago running our business from the, from the road. That's a business that makes more money in, in, in less time. That's, the, that's a business owner's mindset. It's surprising even still all the digital tools, the age, people still build themselves as a slave in the business. Yeah, they, you know they build I mean? themselves so, right in. Yep, they, right they into it. themselves right into the fabric of the cloth. Right. And I've gone back and, you know, I co-own a, a company with uh, my dad and we've gone back and forth on this too is, yeah. is um, you know, oh, we, we're, we're so unique. No one else can sell what we sell <laughs> and all this good stuff. And it's, it's a constant back and forth on that. It's like, we can't be the only person to manage that side of the business. And I think, it's either that or it's the production or one arm or the other. So you mentioned four pillars. What are those four pillars? What What is the missing link for yeah. people being able to build a company that serves them like that? Yeah, if you go to business school, you talk to business gurus, you, you hear things like, oh, you got it. The, the, the real pillars of a great business are a great product, great financing, great people on the bus, uh, the right market, the right, you know, none of that stuff is actually the four building blocks. You need those things. But the four building blocks are things, again, we stumbled onto by just working with our own lives and, and hundreds of business owners. Number one is a big why, a, a lifetime goal, something you can use your business to build. What are you doing this for? What are you doing this for? I, I have a friend who, who has a $20 million a year business, takes home a couple million dollars, $3 million a year. And I ask him that bit, that that, that question, and he actually sat there for four or five seconds, and then he said this word, crickets. <laughs> he he said, said out loud, crickets. He said the word, crickets. He said, I got no answer. You know, we're wow. just listening to crickets right now. What are you doing this for? Uh, so that's number one. If you don't have a big why, and that's the, the essence of this book, making money is killing your business. People who try to make money generally don't make a lot of it because it's not motivating enough. People who have something bigger to do than make money generally make a bucket load of money. So as Robert Herjavec, one of the sharks says, don't go into business to make money. Go into business to solve a problem, to add value to the world around you. But even bigger than that, why are you in business? Well, how are you going to use that to get you what you want? And it's not just you, it's everybody who works with you. We, we have our, our, in our company, everybody who works here, we designed this company so they can find their own personal destiny. And we believe that that will make us a, a greater company and we'll make more money as a result. So it's, it's a mindset that's, that we have to flip. So that's when number think, one is a, is a big why. And I think once a you lot a big, of, just to pause on, I think a lot of people with the, with the why, the why is, oh, I want to help people. So, um, and, and I hear a lot of, um, Coaches like you, educators like you saying, develop that big why. Yeah. How do you uniquely help people discover that big why? How do they identify that big why? Yeah, well, we spent a lot of time on that. That was the first workshop we ever developed 15 years ago. Yeah. And I gave it for free once a month for a year just to, to work it out. 
and now it's an online course as well. And, and uh, so we, we do a lot of work on that. In three and a half hours, we can help you uncover your big why. You've already got one. We don't need to help you find it. We just need to help you peel back the layers and, get, and stop feeling guilty and let it come out. Uh, so we do a lot of work on that. It's fundamental, and we, and we drive toward, with it with businesses. It's that true north sort of thing. If you don't have a big why, you're going the wrong direction. So an example would be one, one friend of mine uh, now. He was a, a, an acquaintance. We talked to him about this big why. He was already a very successful uh, mortgage broker here in Denver for 20-plus years. And uh, he, we walked through the big why stuff for, for a, a few weeks, and he came back to me and says, I got my big why. I said, great how do you know you have your big why? And he looked at me with steely eyes and he says, because it has me. And I thought, well, that's a clever answer. Let's test that. How do you know it has you? And he said, really simply, because now I can't help myself. Every question I have in business and in life, I can't help myself. I have to pass it through that test and say, does this help me fulfill my big why? So it, it's got me whether I buy a copier or start a new business. He ended up uh, retiring quickly from the mortgage business and built five assisted living centers because his big why was to help people get from where they are to where they need to be. And he came across a guy in a coffee shop who had lost his job in a, uh, uh, an assisted living center. He'd been managing small 16-person assisted living centers for a long time. And he said, well, how much does it cost to get one of those started? And let's get one up and running. And now that's all he does. He's got five of them. And, and it's all based on his big why. That's, that's the power of a big why. Definitely. So are you encourage people to build big businesses and make lots of money or is making no. lots of money? A, no, I encourage a, them to thing. figure out what their big why is and then build whatever they need to, to get that done. Got the it. business we're building, three to five clubs, that can be, we want a three to five club in every city in the world. It could be a 500 million to a billion dollar business. Yeah. So what? Uh, it's not about the money. It's about the impact and the bigger your impact. Capitalism, interestingly enough, and I, I'm, I'm trying to write a book on this. There's a difference between capitalism and industrialism. People don't hate capitalism. They just think they do. They hate industrialism. Capitalism always adds value. It never not adds value. You get paid because you, you blessed somebody with something. Industrialism makes money and even, it'll even add value if it has to. So a lot, a lot of Wall Street is industrialism. A lot of what we do with giant corporations, they're just in it to make money and they'll add value if they have to, but that's not what they're in it for. So well, I want to get everybody back to capitalism because I think that's the game. And you look at the greatest of companies, I believe early on for the first 20 plus years, Microsoft was industrialist. They wanted to make money and Apple was a capitalist. They wanted to add value. And capital end, uh, Apple ended up be, being the biggest or the highest ca uh, capitalized uh, business in the world. So that's, that's not that one of the big why. People look yeah. at that negatively. A lot yeah. of people, I mean, there's a huge culture war around all this right now. Oh, sure, sure. It's a very yeah. controversial statement for sure. <laughs> yep, yeah, it is. Uh, but yeah, you can, I, think, I, think I'm, I think I can hold my own with that idea that industrialism is really the issue that, that uh, we're, we're dealing with when industrialism takes money from the local to somewhere else. Capitalism gets the money to run around locally. So a candlestick maker uh, uh, sells to the baker who sells to the shoemaker who sells back to the candlestick maker. And that same dollar just runs around in the community. And the faster it goes, the, the better off everybody is. It's called the velocity of the dollar. That's the fundamentals of capitalism. Well, giant corporation incorporated comes in, puts a store in place, buy, gets all the money and takes it out of there and takes it to, say, Atlanta uh, or wherever and takes it away. That's not capitalism. 
That's mm. industrialism. So there's, and, and that's what people don't like. And that's what they see and they think it's capitalism. It's not. We gotta, we gotta, it's so far removed from capitalism, we can't call it that. It's, it's a vestige of the industrial age when the Rockefellers and those guys were driven completely and solely by making money. Rockefeller knew nothing about oil. Carnegie knew nothing about steel. Uh, Vanderbilt knew nothing about railroads. I mean, on and on, Morgan knew nothing about electricity. They just saw an opportunity to make money and, and make as much of it as they could, as ruthlessly as they could. And that's the roots of industrialism. And, and most corporations today are still running with that mindset. But the, the smart ones have figured out they're going to make a lot more money if they do it another way. So that's mm. a big Y number is the first building block. A strategic plan is the second one, which is very different than the business plan. Don't believe in business plans, but you need a plan for where you're going. The third one is what we call freedom mapping, which is mapping your way off the process, off the, off the, out of the process. This is where you go from being an income producer to a business owner by mapping yourself out of the fabric of the business. And then the fourth building block is outside eyes. People like me or you or other people or just friends who have no dog in the hunt who can accelerate the first three things, first three learnings. If you have those first three things, uh, you're going to be great. If you have those, if you don't have those and you got all the other traditional great product stuff, you're going to be in trouble. So how do those apply now with everything happening? I mean, we're in a, we're in a weird time. We're in a pandemic, um, unprecedented for all business owners. How, how do you recommend people navigate the, the, the territory? Yeah. Well, again, it's, for me, it's another uh, area of uncertainty. So I get excited. Uh, and I think we all need to. I, I, my mindset that I, that I want every business owner to have and really every human being on earth is we're all startups. We're all startups again. Remember when you were a startup? You didn't know what you were doing. You didn't know what your price should be. You didn't know who your market should be. You weren't sure about your products. You weren't sure about anything. And somehow you were excited. <laughs> All that got you excited instead of depressed. Well, you're welcome to, to being a startup. So the, the mindset here is uh, the economy is like roller coasters. It goes up and comes down. And on the, first, uh, on the first down slope of a roller coaster, what's everybody doing? They're screaming like crazy. <laughs> They're all living in fear and screaming like crazy. But it's that downward momentum that will actually give you the momentum to go through the rest of the ride. So let's ride this thing down as fast as we can, learn as much as we can, figure out how to use the momentum coming at us for, uh, uh, for, the, uh, uh, for our benefit. Uh, what's the, the martial art that, that um, Kaizen, uh, Kaizen, I can't remember the name of it. Somebody gave it to me, but uh, basically it's a martial art that uses the energy coming at you for your own benefit. So it, you don't see it as good or bad. You just see it, well, how can I use that? And that's what we need to be doing with this pandemic. Uh, some people will be completely re reinventing their businesses and others will be just uh, uh, pr uh, pushing hard to stay alive. And, but uh, let's all figure out how to use the, the, uh, uh, the momentum coming at us for our own benefit. Stop whining. I get it. Uh, I grieve to use 10% of your time to grieve what was and then use 90% to get excited about where you're going. What do you think is going to be some of the biggest um, business changes out of this? Yeah, it's a great question. Some of them are really exciting. Some of them I fear. Uh, the best, survival is the strongest instinct. And so when we get into these kinds of environments, this is when we get creative. I've heard more creative ideas in the last you know, three months, and I had probably five years before that. Uh, the best, uh, the, the, some of the, the uh, many of the best corporations, giant, giant corporations were started in recessions. 80 plus percent of all patents 
are by companies that are under two years old. They're in survival mode. So there's a lot of opportunity here. Just untold opportunity for us to, to grab something around. We started two new companies as a direct result of this uh, pandemic. We don't know if they'll pan out. They might be the tail that wags the dog too. But, uh, you know, things we would have Such never thought expression. of. a expression. Yeah, but we, we, we they, Connor, they may be the thing that, that, that blows everything else up. We don't know. But we would have never thought of them if it wasn't for this opportunity. Do, so, Do you see any, in, like, particular industry or sector that's going to explode, some that are going to completely go away? Yeah, forever? well, I think technology already was. These kinds of things accelerate where we were going anyway. You know, if the wall is fragile, when an earthquake comes along, it falls down. It was already fragile. And we're going to see a continuation of, of those kinds of things. The strong, uh, it's just going to accelerate a lot of movement toward online and toward digital and toward technology. So I think they'll be the big winners in this, but it's not like it was unfair. It just happened quicker. Hmm. You know, it's kind of, it was just happening getting, anyways, but this shoved a lot of companies. Yeah, we're probably going to get the next 10 years worth of, of transition in the next year. So it's, wow. it would have happened anyway. And then some of it that will be, that I fear, I, 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 I try not to be pessimistic about anything, but, but I am concerned that, that uh, small business owners will get tired and quit and giant corporations will move into their space and we will have fewer for a while quite a bit, potentially quite a bit fewer small businesses and more giant corporations. And we don't need either one of those situations. We don't need less small businesses and more giant corporations, but that's a possibility that the local restaurant will, will just not be able to make it or just can't, you know, they just get tired and quit because they don't have the, the momentum and some giant corporation will move their restaurant into their space. Yeah. Have you, have you gone to any restaurants yet since oh, yeah. they've opened back up? It's because yeah. I went to a really popular one down here in downtown. They're owned by a huge restaurant group and I'm, they're packed in, in, yeah. nor, in normal times, air quotes, normal times. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm sitting there and the turnover and everything that's happening, um, the way they're turning tables. I'm like, this is a huge, the way they're normally packed, they're open and they're able to open back up. There's no way they're going to make it. There's no yeah. way these restaurants are going to make it. Yeah, it's, it's, they're going to have to reinvent themselves and, and we're going to have to, we, we got to stop uh, uh, selling fear. That's the first problem with what we're doing. There's, there's no balance in the reporting that's going on. The uh, CNN has that vulgar stock ticker of death thing they put on that's just irresponsible and completely inaccurate. Yeah, um, in so many ways. But there's just, you just turn on the news for 30 seconds and it's all about fear. There's so many opportunities to look at this differently and see it in, in very different ways, but they've scared some people away from going to a restaurant for the next five years. They just have. And you, uh, you, you personally feel the fear is fairly unfounded. I personally fear, feel that we should be scientifically based. And most of the fear is not scientifically based. 50% 50, 50 of the people who die from this are over 80, half. 40-some percent of the rest of the people who die are over 70. I'm 66, so you know, I'm, I'm in that cohort. 43, uh, if you're under 45, 3% of all the deaths from COVID are under 45 years of age. If you're under 20, 0.0%. I think there's been one person 
that they can document. Those are statistics we should know because now we know how to actually protect people. This isn't discard the old people's talk. This is let's figure out who actually needs to protect it, build a fortress around them. But what do we do? We're taking healthy people and we're, we're, we're taking them offline when in fact, they, you know, there's just so many other ways to do this. Making them less healthy. Yeah. How do you, I mean, Colorado, speaking Colorado specifically, this is Mile High Mentors. How, how do you, I have my perspective on it and, and I agree, go on the science. There's a force mandate on wearing face masks outside, even if you're, people aren't obliging to it, but technically you could be fine by being outside of your house and not having yeah. a face mask right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would much prefer that people uh, wear their masks because they are concerned about people around them. Uh, uh, I, I, I get concerned when we start mandating things that are, that should happen because then people start resisting them. It's an odd response in, in human history, but it, it happens all the time. I would much rather have great education as to why that would be a good thing to do. And then, uh, you know, we can, all, we can all help the person who doesn't figure it out, help them figure it out. But, but if we have to go that route, the data says that if we wear masks in public for now, we're going to be better off. Yeah. So I wear a mask in public. I don't like them. They make me hot and all kinds of other things, but, I, I wear a mask in public because the data says that's a, that's a smart thing to do. Yeah. So I, I think we should be data-based. And there will come a time very quickly here. There's two kinds of fear, Connor. One is uh, the fear of the possible and the other is the fear of the probable. And we are fearing right now too much. We're growing into a fear of the possible. We're, it, it, it was probable there for a while that if you got this thing, you would die. It was like three, you know, at one point, it was one out of three. It was 33%. Then it was 3.4% for a long time. Then it was 2%. Then it was 1%. It's going down, and we're pretty close to yeah. where it's not, it's not anywhere near the flu yet, but we're getting there. And when we get to where we're pretty close to the flu, uh, responding the way we are might be considered fear of the possible. So the, the example there would be, I'm never going hiking again because it's possible that there's a bear in the woods. Just never going to go again. And a lot of people live their lives fearing the possible, that the airplane might fall out of the sky. So I'm never going to fly in one again, when in fact we all know it's safer than driving. Fear of the probable is you want, you're on a hike and, you're, and you, you come around a corner and there's a bear 100 yards in front of you. Okay, probably, fear of the probable says if you keep going, something bad will happen. So fear of the probable is a really healthy instinct. You should go the other way. There is good, healthy fear. Then there's paralyzing fear that will keep us from moving forward. And, and we're, we're selling a lot of fear of the possible. We're beginning to ignore the data. When we went into lockdown, and we did it for great reasons, and that was to not overwhelm our facilities. Well, there's one state right now that is near to do that. They better do something about it. But uh, no other state actually needed to do that. We never got close. In fact, New York never overwhelmed their system. The Javits Center Hospital was empty most of April and the ship went home empty and we never overwhelmed anything. We kept healthy people off the streets without good data. The uh, Prime Minister of Norway 10 days ago said, she admitted, we have made all our decisions based on fear, not on data. We've locked down, we've, we've done everything we did based on, on fear of the possible. So I get it, that's, you know, we want, we want to be sure, but at some point you're so sure that you're no longer living. Right. And it's, it's a part of at what point, uh, let's take Colorado even, do we push back on some of the, um, you know, 
your business needs to close back down. They close, you know, Texas, yeah. they totally close yeah. back down and they're, they're still doing elective surgeries in Texas. But if you look at the media, they're talking about all these increase and deaths yeah. and all that good stuff. So it's, it's hard, man. It's hard to navigate, especially as a, as a, a young person who's never been through economic downturns and experiences. Type and stuff. Connor, I think that's really important for me to say that I'm not promoting a, a, a an economic versus death discussion. Hmm. Cause I think that's one of the problems that, that people in, in, in particular, on one side of the argument, politically, are are all about, hey, we can't sacrifice the economy for deaths. I think that's a, a mood argument. It's a dumb argument. Yeah. My argument is we should not sacrifice life for death. We should not sacrifice more deaths for death. This is a death versus death argument. The UN says 130, 130 to 150 million more people will be thrown into abject poverty and we know statistically what that does to people's deaths. Somewhere around 30 million children are predicted to die as a direct result of lockdown worldwide. Well, we've had how many people died? You know, 11,000 or whatever, or I'm sorry, 200 and some thousand died from this thing directly. 30 million children alone. 120,000 deaths of despair predicted for the U.S. alone. Those need to be in the equation as well. Fareed Zakaria uh, or... Uh, Somebody and that's else not an economic discussion. That's not a this is open not an economic business. discussion. That's a this is, that's a, um, a it, wellness. It's a well, and, and it's a compassion versus emotion. Frankly, mm. what we're doing is we're responding emotionally to a very visible death. When compassion says we need to take we need to take into account the deaths we cannot yet see that are already happening around us. I know of eight people who have committed suicide in the airline industry and the dental industry. Don't know them personally, but I know them. I know, I know people who know them. Um, and alcoholism and, uh, and then the poverty, the poverty deaths that will happen as a result of this lockdown, um, those kinds of things. We need to take it all into effect and say, what's the best decision? The question we, the question we haven't had, we haven't taken into account in this entire thing is this. How do we ensure the fewest people die from all causes? If we were taking that tack, we would do things differently. But we're only, we're listening to one very narrow uh, uh, slice of scientists who understandably have a very myopic view of life. And all they see is COVID, directly COVID-19 deaths. And so we're, our country is being run by a very few scientific uh, pieces of data. And uh, I think it was uh, 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 what's his name, Smirkanish on CNN. <clears throat> he said, we cannot and should not prioritize one death over another. Hmm. And that's what we've been doing. So this is not an economy versus death argument. That's a, you know, that is not, you're going to lose that argument. This is a death versus death. How do we ensure the fewest people die from all causes? If we actually took that all question causes. on, we'd yeah. get economists, we'd get sociologists, psychologists, we'd get all kinds of people involved in this discussion like Japan has done just recently. They have a whole group of people, and yes, epidemiologists are one of those people at the table. So if you were running every, if you're a president, I mean, what would you do? What, 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 what's your, well, what's the first thing I would do is I would convene a panel of, of the smartest brains that would, would be related to all possible deaths. Each so economic deaths and deaths of despair, sociologists and, and uh, psychological 
deaths. And, you know, I'd, I'd get people who, who know all these things. There's data on this. Insurance companies have a formula for how much money you make related to how soon you will die. There's a direct correlation between poverty and money. And so get those people at the table too and say, okay, so for every, everything we lock down and every, every, every notch we take the economy down, we're going to suffer another 200,000 economic deaths. Well, and, and not, really, to, we not to cut you off, I want to hear what's, too, what's interesting too is how do you, how do you um, put the uh, price on a life? You know, how yeah. do you, but, but um, ironically enough, we, we do it a lot in the insurance game and these other industries is literally putting a price on a life. So, well, Connor, this is where the emotionalism versus compassion comes in. I believe we right. price lives based on their visibility more than anything. Hmm. The, the vulgar stock ticker of death thing on, on CNN that shows you uh, COVID deaths every day doesn't show you the, 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 all the other deaths that are happening as a direct result of this thing. We don't see those out of sight, out of mind. How dare you uh, uh, say that somebody should not uh, be protected from COVID? Well, how dare you condemn 30 million children in, uh, in the world to die because you locked healthy people down? Do you want to justify that against 250 or 300,000 other deaths? You know, we can't prioritize deaths over deaths. But I, I get it. We do it. We do it emotionally. We think we're being compassionate. Emo compassion takes everybody into account. Emotion takes in what I can see. Yeah. I think, I think humans are good by nature. And I think yeah. we oh, yeah. try to do a good thing. I think, I think maybe ignorance uh, outweighs malice intent. Oh, it's, it's not malicious at all. It's just when yeah. I can see somebody dying in front of me and I can't see the guy, you know, the analogy would be if you pull this person out of the sand, seven other people will die. You won't see him. You'll just see this one die. What would you do? That's a tough question. And the obvious compassionate answer is you save the, the most people. But the, the emotional answer is, I don't want to watch this guy die. And of course, you do the best you to keep all eight of them. That's the, the, the best answer is, well, let's see how we can keep all eight of them from dying. So, yeah. But yeah, well, I get I'm, it. I'm, I'm glad. I'm great. We, can, we live in a country where we can have these discussions, have these conversations. Yeah. And so for that, I'm super grateful and for you sharing on that. And um, also, too, anything else, business, I mean, anything whatsoever that's really top of mind uh, for you that you think would be really important to, touch on. Yeah, I appreciate that. Kind of my, uh, my next book is coming out uh, uh, September 24th. It's called Rehumanizing the Workplace. I just got the first advanced copy of it. It's a, uh, just a, a mock-up copy, but uh, uh, that book, I wrote it before the pandemic, and it's about getting, it's about uh, the subtitle is How to Give Everybody Their Brain Back hmm. at Work. And the, the, the art, it's the art and science of distributed decision-making. How do we get decisions done where we don't have managers in place? Well, gee, what a surprise. Now we've got this thing called working remote. And I think this could be the number one book on how to work remote. So I, I'm really excited about helping people understand that they don't need to be in offices to be managed. The whole idea of management is a, it comes from slavery through serfdom, through the military into business. It doesn't even, it, it does, it's not effective. <clears throat> That's probably the thing that's most top of mind for me is that, that managing people actually does not make them more productive. The data has been there for 10, 15 years now that people who work from home are more productive. Interesting. 
All so this is this is this also falls under the category of what you've spoken quite a bit about for a number of years now the participation participation age right yeah that, yeah this is, is this is my second book on the participation age why employees were always a bad idea is the first one and yeah. that was the who what when where and why of the participation age this book is the how rehumanizing the workplace by giving everybody their brain back there's 12 tools of distributed decision-making that we've identified, not in an ivory tower, but by doing them, by helping companies get there. We just finished with a $300 million company in California that went from a completely top-down hierarchical structure to, a, to an organizational distributed, what we call distributed decision-making team yep. structure with no managers. They have leaders. The future no of companies is a commu communities. Future of companies are communities oh, decentralized. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's one of the chapters in this book. Uh, funny, funny as you say it, I, I say in this book on community that I believe the concept and, and the, 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 the whole concept of community is probably the next big topic in business. How do we actually become community? Because we separated work. 1850 was the first time more people went to work than actually just went downstairs to work. We went to factories. And ever since, we've actually gone to work. It's this very weird thing in the history of man. We go to work, which means we separate work and personal life. And we got to get those things reintegrated in a, in a way that's healthy. You know, we don't want to overrun the personal life. But work should not be, the purpose of this book is to help people understand work should not be an unwelcome interruption in an otherwise really great day. It's integrated into what I'm doing. It's part of my day. I get out, I get, get out of bed and maybe I get out of my pajamas because I work at home, but I just, you know, I flow into my work and I work with other people and uh, it's, it's part of who I am. It's not an interruption. And they're my not, mother taught me- They're, they're really not separated anymore. They, they are one and the same work and yeah. But my mother taught me, she coming out, you know, she came out of the Great Depression. She said, you, you don't go to work to make friends and to be happy. You go to work to make money. You can make friends and be happy at home. That's not attractive. <laughs> not so much. I think, I, I think it's important because I think a lot of companies talk about community. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested to hear how you break it down. A, a CEO is saying, we, we're a family, we're a community. Yeah. No. But that's imposed. That's not the actual exactly. culture. It's not an actual community. Yeah. In a nutshell, I can give away the whole book. Most books can be given away in a few sentences, but the whole mindset here is that, uh, that uh, managers tell, leaders ask. And leaders, leaders get other people to own what they want them to own. They don't manipulate them to get them to own it. They, they postulate, they theorize, they say, hey, what if we did what, you know, this? And then they get everybody else involved in it. The mantra here is people commit to what they create. Or another way to say it is input equals ownership. So yeah, you come up with a great idea from on high about community and you march that out and you tell everybody we're going to be a great community. They don't own that. But if you went to them as an as a open space leader and said, okay, I've got this idea. What if we became a community? Who wants to get involved in that idea? Who wants to, to uh, help march that out? And how do, we, how do we get everybody involved in that? Let's see if that's a good idea. Let's say uh, people commit to what they create. And that's the whole idea of distributed decision making. Stop making decisions from a top-down basis and start figuring out how do people make decisions that they have to live out. Any decision I have to live out, I should be making. And we do that as a team. So when there's no people, When can people get their hands on the book? Um, September 24th is when it's going to come out. We'll probably have pre-launch stuff going on before that. But uh, 
September 24th is called Rehumanizing the Workplace by Giving Everybody Their Brain Back. The 12 Tools of uh, the Art and Science of Distributed Decision-Making. Beautiful. Well, Chuck, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and coming and mentoring all of us today. And um, uh, what's the best way for people to find you, follow you, get into contact with you? Yeah, real simple. We keep trying to keep things simple. ChuckBlakeman.com. ChuckBlakeman.com. And you can find people. everything else we do from there. ChuckBlakeman.com. Cool. Make sure you go hit that. Those of you listening, uh, appreciate you. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review. We'll see you next time. Podcast listening, people. Plug Agency Production.